Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. This episode about 1917, we'll be talking about what was probably the most apocalyptic year for Great Britain, as the Kaiser's Germany unleashed their U-boats in unrestricted submarine warfare. So, where were we? Well, we left off part two at the end of 1916. Twice before, in 1915 and 1916, the Germans had started unrestricted submarine warfare campaigns. Also in 1916, the Serbs fleet's naval offensive culminated in the Battle of Jutland, which was inconclusive, but once again bottled up the German Empire's high seas fleet in their harbors. Meanwhile, the stalemate on both the western and eastern fronts continued. The British and French blockade of the Channel in the North Sea was still going strong, and British and Russian submarines caused a lot of trouble for the German Navy and transport fleets in the Baltic Sea. In the southern war theater, things weren't working out either for the central powers. Italy had ended the war against Austria-Hungary in 1915 and against Germany in 1916. Austria-Hungary and Italy were enveloped in bitter battles in the Alps. The Austro-Hungarians were rocked by local uprisings in the Balkans and by Allied attacks there. In the Middle East, Allied forces were pushing the ever-weakening forces of the Ottoman Empire out of Iraq and back toward Turkey. And while German and Austro-Hungarian submarines were wreaking havoc and shipping in the Mediterranean Sea, British and French merchants had started avoiding the Med and shipping much-needed goods from the colonies by sailing around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. Yes, that took longer, but still, the necessary foodstuffs and war supplies were arriving at a steady pace in Great Britain. And as we touched upon in Part 2, not all was well in the German Empire. Yes, the Allied blockade was effectively blocking the flow of imported goods. German submarines had taken to seizing the cargo ships, taking goods on board, and shipping it to occupied ports on the Belgian coasts or ports in northern Germany. Copper, for instance, was in short supply in Germany, and so it was a sought-after commodity. The large submarines of the Deutschland class, the former merchant submarines, which we talked about in Part 2, were seen as especially useful for this task. The former merchant-class submarine was now designated as a new class all by itself, called Tauchkreuzers, or diving cruisers. They were indeed submersible cruisers of some sort, with large deck guns and also large enough to pack more diesel fuel, increasing their range so that they could sail well beyond British waters and onto the east coast of the USA. In short, they had truly taken the place of the surface battle cruisers and followed the same raiding strategy. At one point, after a weeks-long patrol, the former Deutschland submarine, now designated U-151, returned to port carrying 22 tons of copper it had seized from the holds of merchants. Still, it wasn't enough, by far, to replenish the loss of imports. And as so often happens in world history, something happened over which Germany had no control. The harvest of 1916 was catastrophic, owing to bad winter. 
Potato crops especially were very bad. The situation was worsened because of the lack of labor. Germany had mobilized much of its labor force into soldiers. Crops rotted away on the land or in barns and could not be moved to the cities. Germans had to import turnips from Sweden as ersatz potatoes, dubbing the winter of 1916 and 1917 the turnip winter. And on top of all this was, of course, the necessity of feeding and arming the enormous armies in the field. So, a successful Allied blockade, a bad harvest, and enormous pressure to churn out food, shells, and bullets for the armies made for a perfect storm for a German high command. It was time for big decisions. In the meantime, there had been a shift in the upper echelons in the halls of power in Berlin. Successful generals like Paul Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff, who had effectively beat the Russians in the East, now had powerful voices. The Kaiser listened to them. Some said that a silent military coup had actually taken place. The civilian leaders, such as the Chancellor and his cabinet, were increasingly taking a back seat on naval affairs, which were the dominion of the Emperor. For a variety of reasons, the civilian leaders and the brass had been at odds with each other ever since the outbreak of the war. We won't get into it too much because the Byzantine way the German leadership was organized at the time, well, it really is a podcast unto itself. And this is a podcast about history of submarines. So, I don't know, separate project maybe. Anyhow, you history buffs will have to forgive me for cutting it short. The military men had advocated for unrestricted submarine warfare all along. It was civilian Chancellor Bethmann Holweg and the foreign ministry who were able to convince the emperor twice, first in 1915, then in 1916, to stop the unrestricted offensive, out of fear that the doctrine would force the United States to declare war. But in early 1917, with all the major problems hitting Germany, the military strategists decided that the time had come for a bit of rolling the dice. And this time, the military men were in full control. The politicians were bluntly told that they had nothing to say anymore about the Navy, which was the Kaiser's personal plaything anyhow. By this time, Germany had already undergone one major shift. The efficiency of the submarine as an offensive weapon was fully recognized and Germany had gone on a production binge. An American diplomat in Germany wrote in his diary that wars like those of Bremer Vulkan, the Germania Werft, and Blumenvoss were churning out submarines like never before. At the start of the war, Germany had about two dozen submarines. At the start of the second unrestricted offensive in 1916, they counted approximately 50. By early 1917, they had over 100. Until November 1918, Germany would build no fewer than 375 various types and classes in total. So that's during the entire four years. Now, in the four years of war, Britain produced some 150 submarines, on top of the existing 77 at the start of the war, bringing its total to 227. At the end of 1916 and January 1917, the old plan of unrestricted submarine warfare was dusted off and updated in Berlin. Having nearly tripled the available number of submarines compared to two years earlier, and with production now ramped up, Berlin felt that the submarine force was on a much better footing to try again. Only this time, the offensive would have to hold. If the leadership decided to go at it one more time, they would have to go all in. The Naval High Command had recalculated their old plans of 1915. 
They still believed that they could force Great Britain to its knees by cutting off its supplies, but they had to up their game. They now added a minimum tonnage to their calculations. The submarine forts would have to sink at least 600,000 tons of merchant vessels per month. And something had to happen. People were eating turnips. Factories were straining to produce enough war supplies and ammunition for the armies, not civilian products. Thus the economy was in tatters. Things could not go on the way they were. If they didn't do something now to break Britain, Germany would be bled white and it would lose the war. Convinced and egged on by the generals, the emperor agreed with the plan. The submarines were filled to the brim with food, torpedoes and deck gun shells. The crews readied and departed to move into position for when the offensive was to begin. On January 31, the German ambassador in Washington, D.C. informed a very angry U.S. government that the new unrestricted submarine warfare offensive would start the next day. On February 3rd, President Wilson of the United States went before Congress and announced the severing of diplomatic relations with Germany. But he did not yet ask for a declaration of war, also because he had been re-elected just the previous November on the promise that he would keep America out of the war. The announcement of the renewed all-out offensive was met with mixed emotions in a German submarine force. Of course, the war had to be won, and yes, there were plenty of fanatical U-boat skippers who had been pulling on the leash ever since the previous offensive was called off at the end of 1916. Yet there were also those who realized what it would mean. Franz Becker, commander of Mindlayer's submarine UC-20, active in the Mediterranean Sea at the time, was no fan of attacking civilian merchant ships. It wasn't until he and his crew came to Germany on leave and saw the effects of the British blockade that they understood the necessity. Quote, The war with the submarines was a serious matter. At the beginning of the war, it was not easy for us to sink merchant ships because we would have preferred to make war against warships. Because we had some personal contact with every merchant ship. I remember especially one day I made a very fine one of the last big sailing ships and to sink her was... Very, very difficult for me. But then we went home on leave to Germany, and we could see how Germany was blockaded. Our people were going hungry. And then we had new forces to make the war with submarines against merchant ships. We needed to know this, to see what the blockade was doing to our country, to know why we were going to war against merchant ships. Unquote. Historian and poet Henry Newbolt captured the impact of the submarine weapon quite well in his book, Submarine and Anti-Submarine, when he wrote, quote, Here in the submarine warfare, and nowhere else so clearly as here, the world has seen the death struggle between the two spirits now contending for the future of mankind. Between the old chivalry and the new savagery, there can be no more truce. One of the two must go under, and the barbarians knew it when they cried, Wettmacht oder Niedergang, world domination, or downfall, unquote. Meanwhile, unbeknownst of the coming onslaught, a crucial discussion was raging at the other end of the North Sea, in London. Ever since the first unrestricted submarine warfare phase of 1915, naval leaders have been at odds about how to meet the U-boat threat. In part one of this episode of Submarines in World War I, I spoke about how the British Admiralty was very much enamored by the decisive battle doctrine of academics like Alfred Thayer Mahan. This doctrine fitted neatly with the brash, tough outlook on life of barrel-chested sailors. In this view, warships were meant to go out and sink the enemy's warships, to dominate the seas, to bludgeon the enemy into defeat. 
There were other voices, though, predominantly younger ones, lower in rank, who held a more nuanced view of how warships could be used. Let's call them pragmatists. Some of them were of the view that warships could be used to protect merchant vessels against the enemy, warship or U-boat. To this end, it was suggested that merchant ships should be packed together in convoys protected by warships. An added advantage to convoying would be that instead of having hundreds of individual merchants at sea at any one time in well-known sea lanes, concentrating them without Berlin knowing where they were would literally deprive the U-boats of targets. The old guard, though, would have none of it. Warships were meant to fight big battles on the seas. You know, Nelson and Trafalgar and all that. That was heroism. Babysitting civilians, that wasn't it. Now, I'm savagely summarizing the arguments here for the purpose of brevity. This is a podcast, after all, but this was basically the gist. Furthermore, the old guard, ostensibly led by First Sea Lord John Jellicoe, was not convinced that convoys would help against submarines. He argued that convoys would be too slow, easy pickings, and thus easy targets. The arguments of the anti-convoyists, let's call them that, are historically somewhat odd, though, because the convoy concept had proven its worth in the centuries before. Even the Royal Navy had used it during the Napoleonic Wars. And even way before that, the Spanish Navy had used convoys to protect treasure ships against pirates in the Caribbean. They knew that stray ships using known sea lanes were easy targets for pirates. Well, that must have sounded awfully familiar. Uh, And these are just two examples. Even in German government circles, the effectiveness of convoys was well known. In late 1916, Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg, still dead set against any military strategy that might force the U.S. into the war, told the emperor that the well-known convoy system could blunt the Navy strategy and still draw the U.S. in. In London, the old guard persisted, and they were backed by the war cabinet. So until early 1917, the debate was undecided. As the submarine scourge subsided to the background because the Germans had called off their offensive in 1916, so did the topic in the halls of the British Admiralty. But the debate came crashing back through the front door when the Germans unleashed their wolves. When it started, the British felt the effects almost immediately. In the first month of February, close to 500,000 tons of shipping were lost. And I'm using British records here, not the, let's call them more enthusiastic German records. In March, it crept up to more than 550,000 tons. In April, it shot up to a shocking 867,000 tons. Now, to give you an idea of the magnitude, in some perspective, the total tonnage of merchant shipping sunk by Germans in the entire year of 1916, so that's including the second unrestricted warfare offensive, was a little over 2.3 million tons. At this rate, in 1917, the Germans would hit something close to that number every three months. In just the three first months of the 1917 offensive, the Germans had sunk close to 1.9 million tons. And already, in 1916, there had been worries in London that Britain wasn't producing enough ships. The new massive losses of the first months of the offensive in 1917, well, they were simply untenable. In the U-boat feeding frenzy, a number of U.S. merchants were also sunk. President Wilson wanted permission from Congress to arm civilian merchant vessels and man them with Navy personnel. 
That request was refused. So in its twist of irony, Wilson used an old piracy law to issue an executive order. Sea losses mounted for the Americans, but still Congress refused permission for a declaration of war. It wasn't until British intelligence divulged the German scheme they had discovered due to their code-breaking of German secret wire communications that Wilson, together with the increasing number of sunk American ships, was able to get Congress behind a declaration of war. I'm talking, of course, about the famed Zimmermann telegram. Long story short, the Germans were trying to pull Mexico into the war on their side, promising them U.S. territory if they won. British intelligence had intercepted the telegram between Berlin and Mexico City to that effect and gave it to the Americans, who were quite understandably not amused. But in the main, it was the actions of German submarines that finally drove U.S. President Wilson and Congress to declare war on Germany on April 6, 1917. So much to the dismay of Germany's high command, because that was a lot earlier than they expected. Britain still wasn't defeated. British media were celebrating reported U-boat losses, and now America had joined the war. The gamble had failed. But but wait, British media celebrating U-boat losses? Yes, it's true. With the Germans almost tripling the number of U-boats they put to sea, losses went up. It's basically a statistical given. But British media were less forthcoming concerning the heavy merchant losses they were enduring, and the numbers of U-boats actually sunk. Up till then, London had been quite successful in telling the world that it was in full control of the situation on the seas and that there wasn't much to worry about. So it was under this optimistic assumption that U.S. Admiral William Sims had a meeting with his British counterparts a few days after the U.S. had declared war on Germany. Sims was assigned to London as the U.S. naval representative, and the two countries had a lot of sorting out to do to get the Allied navies cooperating with each other. Sims went into the meeting convinced that the British had the situation, quote, well in hand. Naval historian Jan Bremer of the U.S. Naval War College researched this period using notes and letters from the people involved and wrote an excellent essay on Sims' experience in London. And boy, did that meeting turn out to be bombshell. Bremer writes, quote, Sims was shocked to learn that the struggle against the U-boats had been far less successful than was being portrayed in the American and British newspapers. When he realized that the numbers of sinkings of British and neutral merchantmen were three or four times larger than reported, Sims observed, It looks as though the Germans are winning the war. British Admiral Jellico agreed. Unquote. New promising weapons, notably the depth charge, were being developed, but if the U-boats kept up their current pace of sinkings, they would not be ready in time or in enough numbers to make a difference. That was why it was critical that the U.S. Navy immediately send help in the way of destroyers and other small vessels, Sims concluded. After this meeting, Sims cabled Washington saying that, quote, briefly stated, I consider that at the present moment we are losing the war, unquote. He warned that the reports of British tactical successes against the U-boats should be treated with a great deal of skepticism. He also told Washington to disregard what they were reading in the press because they were obviously being fed propaganda. Quoting Sims again from Bremer's work, quote, Except no, he underscored no here, reports of submarine losses as authentic and certain unless survivors are captured or the submarine itself definitely located by dragging, unquote. This tells us something about how much Sims mistrusted British sources. 
He also noted that the real loss ratios were off by significant margins, namely 167 to 1, which meant that for each U-boat sunk, 167 merchants went down. This was untenable. Sam's dire warnings were proven correct when the losses for the month of April, so the month after his visit with Jellicoe, were released, the 867,000 tons mentioned earlier. The shocking losses forced the British to rethink their earlier opinion on convoys. With some interference by the new Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, the pro-convoy officers won the day. But as with the battle for the Atlantic itself, it wasn't easy. Admiral Jellicoe agreed to some experiments with running convoys. When the first results were unspectacular, including some slow missions that held up an entire convoy running from Norway to Britain and even some ships being sunk, Jellicoe and his supporters found themselves vindicated. But the supporters pressed on, and soon the first convoys were going to and from the American coast, alternating between known sea lanes in the so-called Western approaches. This had positive results. First, the convoy systems forced shipping companies to pack their ships into these convoys. No longer were the seas bountiful, with vessels everywhere. Quite literally, in the space of a few weeks, the hundreds of ships that were available to the German submarines at any one time simply vanished. Second, the ships were now sailing close together and could be protected by warships. It was like wolves who had been feasting on loose sheep in the countryside and suddenly the sheep were all corralled and then protected by sheepdogs. Third, German naval rules stipulated that its submarines report into headquarters at least once a day so that they knew where the boats were. Through rudimentary triangulation, using listening posts and code-breaking, which we touched upon earlier, the British and Americans were able to determine the locations of U-boats and where they would be going. This allowed the Allies to reroute convoys so as to avoid oncoming U-boats. The results were immediate. German U-boat commanders would sail for days on end around the British Isles. They'd scout between Iceland and the southwestern Norwegian coast. They'd patrol the Irish Sea, northwest of Ireland but they'd rarely come across a target worthy of their expensive torpedoes. The new large cruiser submarines, the earlier mentioned Tauchkreuzers, would venture as far west as they could, but they too mostly encountered empty seas. And where they didn't, they were harassed by warships or aircraft. Yet for all of 1917, or I should say almost all of 1917, they didn't venture into U.S. coastal waters to lie in wait at main shipping harbors, hoping to prevent civilian deaths, while senators and representatives were lobbied by German diplomats to recall the declaration of war. But let's let the numbers speak for themselves. Allied merchant losses went up from 222 ships in January 1917 to 413 in March, so that's almost doubling it, and 516 in April to drop off to 434 in June, 311 in August, 214 in October, and 213 in December. This, with many more U-boats being introduced since February and with U.S. wars ramping up merchant production. In the end, on the last day of October 1918, just 11 days before Armistice Day that ended the war, U-boats sank a mere 94 vessels. More on this, of course, in the next episode of 1918, which completes this four-part episode in submarines in World War I. But meanwhile, throughout 1917, U-boat losses quadrupled compared to the previous year. And, of course, Berlin noticed. 
In early February of 1917, Emperor William II had boasted of his order for unrestricted submarine warfare. In the months following this, state-run newspapers went into overdrive, promoting the U-boat as the weapon that would win Germany the war. But as the numbers of vessels sunk, dropped, while U-boat losses mounted, the military leadership saw the writing on the wall. In the summer, General Hindenburg advised against publicizing victory expectations for the autumn. He no longer expected Britain to be defeated according to schedule. And so, if they showed their optimism, but Britain didn't sue for peace by the time expected, German people would start to ask questions. Better to wipe it under the rug. Still, Germans kept hope. There's an uncanny resemblance, I think, to the last years of World War II, when so many Germans believed that Hitler's vaunted Wunderwaffen weapons would turn the tide. In 1917, hope lay with the U-boats, the Wunderwaffen of that period. General Wilhelm Gröner, a German general, gave voice to his hope in late 1917, while he was on the Western Front. He noted in his diary, quote, Everyone is placing his hopes on the submarine warfare. Among the troops, there is supposed to be widespread hope that there will be peace by winter. Unquote. Of course, strategists and tacticians tried to come up with an answer to the convoy system. One idea was to operate in packs so they could attack a convoy using multiple U-boats at once from different angles. Many of the technologies, strategies and innovations used to great effect in World War II were conceived in World War I. And in fact, as we shall see, many of the innovations conceived by the Germans were used the world over, including by the Americans in the Pacific Theater in World War II and later the Soviet Union's submarine fleets in the Cold War. But alas for Germany in World War I, the early Wolfpack strategy did not work, simply because of a lack of long-range submarines. Thus Berlin basically had no other option but to play the numbers game and boost submarine production of all types and models. This move, too, was a bit of a revolution, and as is so often the case, this revolution was born out of necessity. Until mid-1917, the German army generals had been in near total control of the German war machine. Being army generals, they firmly believed that it should be the army that would win the war, even with the near total stalemate on the Western Front. So, production lay with guns, cannon, aircraft, and munitions for the army fronts. But they threw in their lot with the U-boats. Submarine production now is the Empire's top priority. Meanwhile, another former assurance promised by the admirals had gone out the window. Starting in the late summer of 1917, the first troops' transports had left the U.S. eastern seaboard. Using the convoy system, during all of 1917, U-boats managed to sink only one American troop ship. The American Doughboys, as U.S. soldiers were called then, were arriving by the tens of thousands and moved to the northeast of France, where they replaced French divisions, which were moved to the west, to the center front. This development, the U-boats could not stop. December 1917 saw two more striking decisions. For months, German diplomats and agents had tried to persuade U.S. senators and representatives into taking the U.S. out of the war again, but to no avail. With U.S. troop ships and supply transports able to leave the harbors unscathed, U-boats were given a free hand in the U.S. coastal waters. But there were too few of them to make a difference. The second move was to establish the U-boat agency, making it a separate branch within the Imperial Navy. It was now a standalone force, another first in submarine history. 
in the U.S., another strategically vital decision had been taken. Instead of expanding the U.S. service war fleet, you know, battleships and the like, priority was given to produce destroyers, submarine chasers, and supply ships, all with one goal in mind, to defeat the German U-boat scourge. For submariners, 1917 had been a pivotal year with incredible changes. For better or for worse, the entire world had made its acquaintance with this new weapon that could scare entire nations into changing their strategies and almost bringing the largest empire in the world to its knees. As historian Harold Wheeler put it in his book The War in the Underseas, quote, If the German submarine had succeeded, our army in France would have withered away. Or, as the American ambassador in London wrote to the U.S. State Secretary, quote, Our armies in France had bought coal in England, but we can't get the ships to carry it. The French and Italians will again suffer for coal this winter. There's just not enough ships. Practically every problem of this war turns on ships. The Germans are able to continue only because of their submarines, unquote. But the game was up. In 1914... Submarines everywhere were used as just another warship, albeit submerged, to attack other warships with. It was an ancillary force used in the grand strategy to gain domination of the seas. As told in the first part of this episode in World War I, naval strategists on all sides had foreseen the theoretical use of the submarine as essentially an economic weapon to be used to bleed white the enemy, especially the island nation of Great Britain. It was the Germans who would use the strategy to great effect, and they made the world tremble. In the next, last installment of this four-part episode on World War I, we will see how the Allies win the first Battle of the Atlantic. But we will also see that the U-boat won't go down with the fight. And we will also come to realize that the strategic, tactical, and technological submarine innovations of World War I laid down the blueprints for submarine warfare as we know it today. 